It gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Mr. Peter Aceto. Over the past century, the Empire Club has hosted hundreds of bank presidents and CEOs to our podium. In fact, just this year, we had uh, Rick Waugh uh, send his farewell uh, from this very podium. And in a few weeks, we have uh, the chairman of the Bank of Montreal. Our guest speaker today is someone that doesn't fit the mold, as most of you know, of a traditional Canadian bank president. You know, one of the only cool things, really, if you're in an MBA student or in school, of becoming a president of a bank is that you get this massive corner office uh, somewhere high, high up on, uh, on Bay Street. Uh, but as some of you know, uh, Peter Aceto has a desk in an open concept office uh, among his peers and among his executive team. Under his leadership, ING Direct has developed a corporate culture unlike any other in Canada. It's known for being first to market with various technologies, like that app that you can take a photo of your uh, check and have it deposited. Um, and they've been known for embracing the mobile world. Peter has been named one of the top 50 social CEOs in the world and is known for personally responding to social media. P Peter started at ING Direct over, I think, 17 years ago. He worked for the U.S. side of his business, and then he was tapped to return back to Canada to assume the role of CEO. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, Peter does not fit the mold of an average bank CEO, and I'll give you an example. Recently, he completed an endurance challenge called Tough Mudder. For those of you who don't know what that is, I've taken the, the Wikipedia clip to explain to you what Tough Mudder is. Tough Mudder is an endurance event series in which participants attempt a 19-kilometer military-style obstacle course designed by British Special Forces to test mental as well as physical strength. Opt op obstacles often play on common human fears, such as fire, water, electricity, and heights. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest speaker and a seriously tough mutter, Mr. <laughs> Peter Very unexpected. Wow, that was, a, that was a great introduction. I said just before, I said to Noble, I was like, listen, I get really uncomfortable if you read my bio in front of everyone. It's embarrassing. My mom's here, so I don't need anyone to, you know, to, to, to pump me up. So I was surprised by the Tough Mudder story. I've done it twice, and several of my colleagues have done it with me as well. So there's a lot of Tough Mudders I work with. So Terrence seems very, our student seems very impressed right now. So, <laughs> all right. Have you done it? All right, there you go. He's fellow Tough Mudder. So uh, anyway, I am, uh, it's a great room and it's a great to be a part of uh, such incredible history and heritage. And I got to sign the book that Winston Churchill signed and, and many others after him and before me. So uh, I'm also very excited to speak to you today about change, which is a topic that really has defined a lot about who we are at ING Direct. Um, you know, change is not easy, and many people, uh, we all know, uh, run away from it. And I think in part it's because change uh, come, with change comes uncertainty. It seems easier to do what we know for sure and doesn't take a risk, doesn't it? I mean, it's easier to set goals that we know we can meet. But surely, I think we all know deep in our hearts that that really doesn't get us too far, individually, uh, as a society, uh, or even our businesses. People have a tendency to fear uh, what isn't known to them. But there are some who understand that change creates fantastic opportunities. That change is, in fact, a good thing. Uh, but I'll tell you something that is a little more provocative, and I think this change is good, that was maybe language of 10 years ago. I'm gonna say something a little bit more provocative. Um, you either change uh, or you die. Um, it may be a quick death, it may be a slow death, but a death nonetheless. I think it's a strong statement, and I know this, uh, but I think that's the reality we live in today. Um, I try my best to have my ear to the ground, uh, meeting people, 
uh, talking to leaders of businesses, big ones, small ones, entrepreneurs, uh, certainly my, one of my favorite groups of people to, to interact with. Recently, I'd say over the last 18 months, uh, of course, here in Toronto, uh, Eastern Canada, Western Canada, uh, recently in Silicon Valley, even Israel, and, uh, and even in India. And some of these conversations that I've had suggest to me that many businesses actually have their backs against the wall. And when I think about this on my long plane rides home, I find, uh, I find that they're in a very tough predicament. And I think it's a bit unfortunate, and I think maybe even a little bit unnecessary nowadays. Change has been rampant around us for some time now. I'm sure the whole concept of change isn't something that's new to any of you. But I think it's been accelerating and moving quicker and quicker all the time. Today, I believe you either position your organization to adapt quickly, or you will end up with your back against the wall, which many do. Hence, you change or you die now or later with you in the captain's chair or not in the captain's chair. So that, in essence, is what I'd like to talk to you about today over the next 20, 25 minutes. So the key, which is the subject today of transformational change, is really to create in your organization, whatever that is, uh, a sense of urgency to challenge yourselves, your employees, your industry, challenge your customers, to look ahead, to think bigger, to create, innovate, shake things up, and to really try and make an impact on the world. And my experience uh, has shown me that people underestimate their own personal capacity for change. And I think this is where your leadership is most needed. I mean, how do you get people around you, including your customers, to believe that change is a good thing, not something they should fear? That, in fact, it's vital. And not just a little bit of change, but what we like to say we call big, fat change. The kind of change that leaves a dent in the universe, which is a quote from Steve Jobs. So, how do you get these people, your employees in many cases, the people on your team, uh, to believe? So I'll get back to that in a second. So I think we agree. I didn't, you know, nods, I didn't ask for your agreement or to put your hands up. It's the Empire Club. I don't think we, we have to do that. Uh, but I think we agree that change is, is, is a guarantee in life. So we have a couple choices, right? Either we manage it or it manages us. Uh, there's a particular quotation from Jack Welch. I liked his perspective on this. Jack Welch said, change before you have to. So think about that, change before you have to. What I really like about this quote is it's simple and it's really, really poignant. And I think at ING Direct, our core values, the values that we had when we were born uh, 17 years ago, are really have built a foundation for us where we're built to embrace change. And I think it's more helpful now than it's ever been. Um, after all, we started as a telephone bank in 1997, only offering a savings account. I mean, that's how it all started for us in this country. Uh, let's think for a second about that time, about 1997, the way things were done. Uh, we embarked on a mission to not just change the way banking could be done, but really to transform the way Canadians even think about a bank, what they can expect from a bank, what they believe about the role a bank can play in their lives. We really wanted to change the industry. So we did it with, phone, with a call center and, uh, and really one simple product. It wasn't a small matter, of course. Uh, banking had been done pretty much one way for upwards of 175 years, okay? Uh, recently, I was chatting with a brand marketer, his name is uh, Bruce, and he said to me, uh, only a couple weeks ago, he said, because of ING Direct, banking will never be the same in Canada. In 17 short years, uh, we've evolved our business from a telephone bank with a simple savings product to an internet bank, and soon to a mobile first bank. Most recently, uh, as Noble rightly pointed out, we gave our customers the ability to make deposits simply by taking a picture of their check with their mobile device. We're a bank with just short of two million customers and we don't have one single branch. We did this a long time ago by thinking big. And the only way we're going to survive on a go forward basis to not die in the reference that I used earlier is to challenge ourselves to think even bigger. And I think that's what we're trying to do.
So why is that? I mean, certainly this is one of my challenges at work. Hey, we're doing well, we're making money, customers are coming, why change? Well, our competition is changing. They're changing really fast, and I have lots of proof statements about why they're catching up to us. But I think most importantly, our consumers' habits have and continue to change faster than they ever did before. Their expectations of the companies they want to do business with are changing. So with that in mind, I'll share with you a couple things. The number of households who banked online, by the way, in 1997 when we launched, banking online was not even something that, we, that anyone was thinking about at the time. In 1999, 3% of Canadian households uh, did some form of banking online. In 1999, uh, that was in 1999. Today, 54% of Canadian households do some form of banking on the internet. So 1999, 300,000 households uh, did some form of online banking. Today, 6.5 million households. That's 20 times in a fairly short period of time. So for over 150 years, a branch was the primary way that Canadians accessed their bank accounts. Web banking didn't even exist in Canada 16 years ago, but today it is the number one way that Canadians access and do their primary banking. Mobile, I think, is even a more dramatic story, although that story is not quite finished yet. In 2010, so it's only four years ago, one out of every 20 Canadians used their mobile device to do some form of banking. Just two years later, so 2012, one out of every three Canadians access their bank accounts at least uh, from time to time using a mobile device. And if you ask Canadians today, one out of three of them will tell you that they expect to use their mobile device as the primary way to access their bank accounts in the future. That's crazy if you think about it, 150 years of branches and how quickly we've moved in the last three or four years. At ING Direct, uh, between this period of time of 2010 and, and only 2013, our mo mobile clients, or the amount of clients who are using mobile with us, has gone up by 1,430%. I know it's funny numbers, because the number was small at the beginning, but 20% of our clients are using mobile as their primary way of interacting with us today. This is unprecedented, and I think when you think about it historically, it's amazing. And I think that's just our example. This applies to other industries, other countries, and other sectors. So it's relevant, I think, to everybody in the room. And the way things are going, you think about what banking is going to look like in five years from now, in 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I find it exciting. Some people might find it a little bit scary. So Noble mentioned um, uh, that uh, about remote deposit capture. This is the ability to take a picture of your check, uh, send it to us uh, through our app, and we'll deposit that money into your account instantly, and you'll begin earning interest on it right away. I think this is a good case study for change, and I wanted to share it as an example. Um, I think it's an excellent example about what I mean when I say how you have to challenge yourself in order to make this type of change happen. Uh, taking a picture of a check uh, from your couch or your dinner table or your desk at work and depositing it directly into your bank account was really not an option only 12 months ago in this country. Not until we introduced it. We had a vision that it would be possible for all Canadians to deposit their checks immediately uh, in their bank account without the need for any sort of trip to an ABM, to a branch, uh, or, well, for anything, right? Uh, at the time, uh, 12 months ago, the payment rules in Canada did not specifically permit this uh, type of payment. But we proceeded regardless. Uh, we invested, we built the capability in our business. We had hoped the rule would change, but certainly considered the possibility of launching this important capability without a clear rule being in place uh, to do it. Or at least we would work really hard to make sure and try and influence those rules being changed. Now the world changes around us, and I think I've discussed this already, but I think what's the most important thing here, and it comes out of this story, is really about people. I mean, it really is the people um, who push and make these things happen and challenge the status quo and believe in making a vision real, even though you encounter some obstacles. The speed of change, I'll also tell you, it, uh, it, benefits, uh, it benefits some, 
And change is a problem for others, both individually and from a competition perspective. So as Canadians, sort of in a bigger, in a bigger context, but also in our case and for organizations, um, we must enable our organizations to be nimble. So change becomes our friend, not our enemy. And if change is your friend, you can push the change agenda harder, making your competitors feel more and more uncomfortable all the time. They'll push back, they'll slow you down, they'll throw stuff in your way, but you have to continue to uh, persist and not give up. And again, this is a people thing. And continuing to push will put pressure on rule makers uh, as well. And I believe that if your change is really good for consumers, if it's good for your country, if it's just better, um, and if it will make people's lives better, rules will change. So that shouldn't be the first reason why you don't try and make wonderful things happen. And I think in the case of remote check deposit, consumers absolutely love it. It made sense to us, it makes sense to them. It simplifies people's lives, it's fun to do, it saves time and money, and actually has a fantastic impact on the environment. People don't have to get in their cars, they don't have to spend time, they can get off the road. And look at any innovation, it's gotta be good for business too. And like many other of the innovations that we've brought to the Canadian marketplace, whether it's in our sector or even more broadly, uh, this one has had a significant lift to our business as well, um, increasing the rate of new clients joining ING Direct by 17% over that period of time. So if you keep pushing, it will happen. Do not give up. So now, the benefits, I, another message about change is the benefits of change don't, uh, don't accrue to you completely on day one. And this may sound obvious, but starting your vision of change, learning, adapting, and evolving are key. Oftentimes, we don't get it right the first time. In fact, we seldom do. Change, transformational change in particular, takes patience, resolve, and stick-to-itiveness. It requires the hardest work at the beginning without getting the rewards, uh, but over time, momentum will keep it going and you'll see the benefits, so you can't give up. And I love the uh, analogy, or probably metaphor is a better word, uh, from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which I'm sure many people in the room have read. In one of his chapters, he referred to a giant heavy flywheel and getting it to move, this big giant wheel, takes a tremendous amount of energy at the beginning. You need to keep applying great force to get it to move. You need to hit it the same way with resolve and consistency and energy. But when the heavy wheel starts to move, it becomes easier and easier to keep it moving, to get it to accelerate to a point where you can barely even stop it. And I think in society, we look at big change at times as if it happens all at once. I was talking to someone about this before. You look at social media, you look at the adoption of the web, you look at mobile, uh, e-commerce, uh, uh, direct banking, I think is, even, is applicable. The reality is someone is working on these things for a long time before we notice them. So when we notice them, we notice them all at once. All of a sudden, social media is really important. But it had been there for a very, very long time and it took momentum for us to all notice it all at once. Mm -hmm. So change is not easy, as I think I've already said, and it certainly is not quick. But I think there's a, a bunch of smart organizations who really have figured this out, and I think we could all raise our hands and name a few, Google, Apple, Facebook. Uh, does anyone in the room use uh, Halo or Uber? Halo, Uber, cool people. Why in this climate would you stand outside to hail a, a taxi cab when you can do it right now from your mobile phone and it'll be here waiting for you, you can watch it come, you don't have to have any payment, it just makes sense. So companies like this are revolutionizing their industries. So anyone in the room remember Blockbuster? My kids don't know what Blockbuster is, but... Uh, so here's a great example of a business that, in my opinion, did not have to die. And there's something sad about it. Um, there's a, a famous quote from uh, Alan Kay. He is um, a uh, computer scientist. And what he said is, in the context of this, is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And that's what Netflix did. Any Netflix customers in the room? All right, there you go. Same as the Uber users, apparently. Um, so that's what Netflix did. They understood what Blockbuster failed to see. 
Success today does not mean success tomorrow, and I'm going to get back to that in a second. So, as I said before, you really have two choices. You can sit and watch transformation happen, uh, or you can be an active participant in it. I will say in the defense of Blockbuster that uh, it is much harder to reinvent who you are than it is to start from scratch. So the transformational change that Blockbuster would have needed would have taken a lot more energy, in my view, uh, than creating a brand new Netflix, for example. But I think the moral of the story for me is you don't need death uh, to have rebirth. So it didn't have to be that way. It would have taken energy, but it didn't have to be that way. Um, now, I'd like to tell you a story because I've talked a lot about where we're in control of change. Well, I understand that's not the way it works all the time, and I have some personal experience with that as well. Uh, there is a different side to change, and that's change sometimes happens to you, and it's a bit of a surprise. And I'm going to start with a little example. Here's the example. Some people in the room will relate to it a little bit. In June of 2012, I received an email, and the email said, Peter, could you please come to Amsterdam tomorrow? You guys are supposed to laugh. These are the guys who are supposed to laugh. Okay. <laughs> so moments, so I didn't go tomorrow. I went the day after. But I would soon be told that ING Group had decided that they were going to sell ING Direct here in Canada. I must tell you, I was not surprised. But for some reason, it felt surprising at the moment that I heard it. So you get a call one day after 15 years of loyalty and hard work and passion about what you do. Um, and you're told there's a sale process. And you can't tell anyone. Okay, so now what do you do? Uh, I'll preface my answer by saying there's no home run formula about how you manage change, particularly this type of change. And, and the reason why there's no formula is because people are different when it comes to change. Everyone perceives change through his or her own filters. So what is 10% uncertainty or discomfort for Lisa is 100% chaos uh, for, for Reggie, right? And it's the same situation. Individual percep perception matters a tremendous amount. So equipping people, in my case, in this case, employees, for example, with information is likely the single most important thing that a leader can do, even when you can't share it all. Now, I had the fortune uh, in the middle of this process to chat with Simon Sinek. Anyone know who Simon Sinek is? He's a fairly famous speaker, um, and uh, I would look him up because his YouTube videos and TED Talks are really quite inspirational about leadership. Uh, he was here in Toronto, and he was promoting his new book, uh, Leaders Eat Last. And I asked him specifically about communication in this context. And his answer, I think, was incredibly helpful to me at a time where I really needed some reassuring. And this is what he said. He said, Share whatever information you have as quickly as possible, as openly as possible, even if you can only say a little, say it. It may sound a little radical, but people don't expect only good news. Your employees are smart. Well, I, I hope they are anyway. I think, I think ours are. So a leader's got to be straight. A leader's got to be quick and direct, whatever he or she is able to share. You simply cannot overpromise, and you can't get ahead of the information as much as you want to. You have to manage it every day. Sometimes you even have to manage it um, multiple times in a day. So I, uh, I, I'm sure in the Q&A, so I'll take it off the table. Um, I get asked the question, so how did, how did I do? I mean, did I nail it? And I think uh, the answer is absolutely no. Uh, I think this is probably a big lesson learned for me as, uh, as a leader. I did share as much as I possibly could. I was honest with our employees. I think I even maybe take a little bit of personal risk in sharing some th more things a little earlier than probably my shareholder at the time would have preferred. But my mistake was I was too fatherly. I was too protective. I was too reassuring. So my learning and my advice to you is be straight and be honest. People are expecting balance. Don't paint a rosier picture just to make people feel good now. Now, I'm sure this probably has had some impact on my credibility, uh, my credibility meter, as I like to say, to some extent, which I had invested an awful lot in with our, uh, with our employees before uh, as well as after.
But I think this is why leaders uh, in the CEO context or leading a team of any size, this is why we build trust and loyalty and our credibility tank as leaders so that we can use it when we need it. For times when we don't get it 100% right, which we all acknowledge has to be the case, uh, sometimes we make a bad decision, and more specifically and related to this topic, when we need change in our organization. That's when the trust and loyalty and confidence meter is really, really valuable. So I, uh, I opened a little bit with change is something we hear about all the time, but this topic is about transformational change. Um, you're hearing a lot more of this buzzword transformational change, I'd say, in the last six uh, to 12 months. And I think it was something I wanted to point out because I really do believe from a leadership perspective there is a difference between change and transformational change. And I think from a leadership perspective, understanding the difference is important. So I'll start with change. Change is, I think, the simplest for us, for humans, to understand. It's quite aligned with how we do things, uh, how we were taught in school, how, how we've been encouraged you know, by our parents, even how we're rewarded at work. Simple change begins when you use the past as your starting point. So you start with a starting point of something that already exists and uh, you, uh, you, you try and make it better. You, make, you try and improve on something that already exists. So the language of this type of change is, let's make it better, let's make it faster, let's make it cheaper. But I think transformation is altogether different, and that's one of the reasons why the pace of change is, uh, is so important and why this you're hearing a lot more about transformational change today. With transformation, you start with a vision of the future. That's where you start. And you take steps to make your vision a reality. You need to free yourself from all of the constraints of the past. Transformation is not about making things better, it's not making, about making things faster or cheaper. It's about giving birth to something that's completely new. It's about thinking big and being bold and having guts. It's about using creativity and unique thinking to create something completely new. Of course, in our business and in every business, you need to continue making incremental improvements as well to your business, your business processes. But making thoughtful and giant leaps forward, I think, is the key to sustain, sustain success in this world that is changing so incredibly rapidly. So transformational change is irreversible and it lasts forever. It's defined by radical breakthroughs in paradigms, beliefs, behaviors. So a quote, uh, I don't uh, often uh, quote Gandhi, but I think there was one that's appropriate here. Gandhi once said, uh, in the context of transformational change, we must be the change we want to see happen in the world. Now he was talking about civil rights, he was talking about independence and freedom. I'm just talking about business, and I think in the whole context, what we have to solve, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, when you think of it in a, in a broader perspective. But here's the question that I alluded to earlier that I promised you I'd get back to, back to, which is how do you get your employees to buy in to your transformational change agenda? How do you get them to bend but not break because they're too concerned? Well, you're expecting a big answer. The answer is you don't. They do. All I can do as a leader, all you can do as a leader is be clear about why change is happening, having a vision about where we are going. Sharing your vision is absolutely crucial, but what makes the vision come alive is when you take your employees or your team on the journey of where you are today and where you intend to be tomorrow. Um, it is the stories that you tell, the inspiration that you impart that make this vision real for people, make it understandable, make it exciting, and even palpable. Also, I think maybe even more importantly is you've got to answer the question, what's in it for them? Excitement, opportunity, growth, and I think maybe even more compelling, particularly around, uh, around younger generations, is the true pride um, that what we will have accomplished as a team and as individuals can truly be incredible. So, leaders also have to instill a sense of urgency in our teams, because this is hard work. So listing the possibilities that come from, that are born from transformation. 
But you don't, have, you don't have to have all the answers, all the details, all the time. You've got to start with a vision, the why, the areas of focus for the business. But really, it's up to the team to understand and figure out the how and the when. When they understand, when they're passionate, they can do that. Of course, leaders need to be consistent, like my flywheel example, repetitive, and make the change relevant for people. What I've learned over the years is that people want to know that there, uh, that there will be more excitement, more growth, and more opportunities for them. They need to know what it means for them on a personal level. And I think very importantly, never fool them into believing that change is easy. And I don't want to oversimplify it here today because I only have a half an hour. Change is freaking exhausting. It's every day. It is definitely the harder path to take. But I'll tell you, the rewards are absolutely worth it. I think embracing transformation is also a very personal decision. Uh, I've certainly met a lot of people in my life who are just uncomfortable with uncertainty and they avoid it at all costs. But I've also met with and work with many, many bold individuals who have experienced transformation. They've learned its value and have become comfortable with it. And the problem is you actually grow to love it and, uh, and need, need more and more of it. So our job is to get anyone as leaders uh, who has the slightest inkling or potential to be excited about the unknown, to be as comfortable as, as possible. There's probably a good 10 to 15% of your organization, your team, whatever the context is for you, who you'll never be able to influence, right? who you'll never convince. But if you can get the most open and easily inspired people on board, then you're in a better place to later influence the skeptics. There will always be skeptics. So, um, as some of you know, um, and if you didn't, uh, it's, it's up here on this, uh, this lovely slide. Um, we recently, in November actually, uh, announced our name change uh, from ING Direct to Tangerine. Um, I'm sure that even in this room, there are people right now looking at me, probably 10 to 15% of you, who might think I've lost my mind. Uh, and I bet you there's 10 to 15% of you in the room, not including the ones who are actually involved in this choice, who completely get it without me saying a word. But everyone in between, everyone in between that 30% roughly, that 70% in the middle, uh, needs time. They need time to embrace it. And that's exactly what we expected would happen. You need to understand also, by the way, that we had no choice, okay? Contractually, legally, we had to change our name. But for a business, this was the time, the opportunity to make a bold move, to further distinguish ourselves from our competitors and really set the tone for our employees, but more importantly for Canadians, uh, about the role we wanted to play in this country to make a promise that's bolder than we've ever made before, or maybe equivalent to the promise we made 16 years ago, that will inspire our teams and, uh, to achieve things even they don't know is possible, and to transform the way Canadians view the role that their bank can play in their lives. We've always been a different kind of bank, and I think you very, uh, very kindly and graciously pointed that out. Um, but Tangerine reflects this difference more than ever before. It's bold because that's the way we are on the inside, and we want that to come through on the outside. And it's certainly very different, you would agree, uh, for the financial services sector in this country in particular, and I think being different and distinctive in this marketplace, in this sector, was a very important priority for us. It's not a small change, as you can imagine. It's a transformation that we embarked upon as well to scale our business and really take a giant leap forward. We're dreaming bigger and stretching our vision, our vision wider than we ever imagined 15, 16 years ago. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, yeah, it's sort of a reincarnation of ING Direct, maybe ING Direct with a little bit of steroids. Um, but that's not the way we're looking at it. And I think we were talking about it here at, uh, at, uh, at the head table. Our plan is to create an experience for Canadians that today they don't even know is possible. An experience about what it can be like to interact with a company, let alone a bank. That's our goal, to continue to transform and evolve and excel, 
to grab change proactively so we're not changing later to avoid our deaths, to be dramatic for you again. Um, another very important message, and one that I can tell you our employees care an awful lot about, which is when you're changing, you can't lose the best of who you are either. The cluster of things that make you special, that make you different, that make you great, you need to know what they are, and you need to protect them, and you need to amplify them. So that's part of the challenge. You rotate your change around these competencies and strengths, and we refer to as our culture. Big thinking, I think, and the audacity to trust yourself and your team in making good, smart, and calculated decisions that separate you from the crowd, not just by a little, but by a lot, have really, to a great extent, been uh, at the very foundation of who we are, and we think that is the driving force uh, behind Tangerine for the years ahead. Uh, you don't get a lot of opportunities to change your name and to kick up and transform your business in this way. There are really few opportunities in the world where you have the ability to reshape something, a business that's already successful and well thought of, uh, that has a solid purpose and mold it into something that's bigger and better, yet while not losing what's magical and special about it. Your teams, as I've already mentioned, in any change, big or small, need to believe this opportunity is good for them too. Uh, but they're the ones who need to figure that out on their own with your help. They, like you, have to look in the mirror and make a deep personal choice and ask themselves, am I up for the task? Can I do this? Do I have the energy to push that flywheel about whether they believe your vision and they're inspired to do that extra hard work? As I mentioned, it is hard work. It's not the easiest path, but the prize is really quite incredible. As I've already mentioned, change begins within. There's only so much that I can do, uh, but it's in, it's in everyone, each and every one of us. So we either decide we're up for it or not. That's what it takes. So a couple last things before I close, and then I have a surprise, something I want to show you guys. I've got to hold something back to keep you excited. So I should have told you that at the beginning, although I'm not seeing yawning, so that's good. Um, uh, as it relates to change, uh, I particularly like uh, John Cotter's perspective. John Cotter wrote Leading Change. It's a great book, and I've actually subsequently read it again. And he talks about trans transformational change. And this is what he said. He says, a higher rate of urgency does not imply panic, anxiety, or fear. It means a state in which complacency is virtually absent, because there's no room for it. I bet that that state that Dr. Cotter was referencing in his book is exactly the state which Andy Grove transformed the business of Intel many years ago, uh, really transformed that business. And I'll leave on this note. Andy Grove famously said, success breeds complacency. Complacency breeds failure. Only the paranoid will survive. So I will add something to that quote. I will say, only the paranoid survive and thrive. So thank you guys so much for your patience and for having me here today. It really is an honor. But I want to show you one thing before I anticipate what hopefully will be at least a little bit of applause from this table, which is uh, I have, uh, before you show it, I hope you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, we have just begun, so we announced that we're going to be changing our name to Tangerine. We need to tell Canadians uh, louder than we've ever told a story before. So on Monday, this is going to be the first ad that is going to uh, be on television. It's functional. It does a very specific thing, which is it tries to keep all the attributes of ING Direct and transform them over to Tangerine. And then in a short period of time thereafter, uh, we will only be in the marketplace known as Tangerine. So here's that piece that um, you get, the first, our employees got to see a sneak peek of it yesterday, and you guys get to see it today. So if you could run it, please. In 1997, ING Direct set out to simplify banking and help Canadians save their money. With great rates, no unfair fees, and award-winning customer service, they also changed people's perceptions of what a bank could be. And now comes time for another change, their name. Tangerine's a different kind of name because it's a different kind of bank. And it's one that will continue to help Canadians move forward with their money. Well, there you go. So you're going to see part of that.
Mr. Aceto has agreed to take a number of questions, so if you have uh, a question, there's a couple of roaming mics. And if you work for ING, you'll get a raise if you ask a good question. <laughs> I'm just a tenant of your true. network orange space, not, a, uh, not an employee, but thanks. I was wondering if you could share uh, two or three specific tools that you and your team, they can be processes or partnerships, use to set your vision for the future of the company. Yeah, well, I think I don't have to repeat it. Usually they teach you to repeat the question to buy time to answer the question. So I guess I can't do that because of the mic. Um, processes, uh, <laughs> stop the mic thing. Um, the, uh, so you mentioned two things. So you mentioned processes and you mentioned partnerships. Let me start with partnerships because I think this is really important because, you know, in this and certainly the accolades heaped upon me but really is deserving of the team. I mean, I didn't create that ad. I didn't create remote deposit capture. We have just a fantastic team, which I think you've inferred. But we also have fantastic partners. I mean, we work, and there's many of them here today, uh, with great partners that help. Um, these ideas don't just come from us. How they become real don't just come from us. So you know, we look at partners not like vendors. Um, it has to be good for both of us. And many of our, of our partners, and sort of that ecosystem of partnership has been incredibly, incredibly helpful for us to give us the scalability to do things, um, uh, to do things that are different, to know what's going on around the world, to help us prioritize the things that are really going to have an impact our business and, and those types of things. So partnerships and looking at them as partners as opposed to vendors, I think, is is process-oriented, and I think it's sort of philosophical. So that's certainly one bit of uh, advice uh, advice that I have. Uh, we do not have a formal process around R&D and around, um, around innovation creation. We have an innovation team, which is a small group of people who are really facilitators of ways of thinking, you know, the best practices and in, uh, in, in design thinking and those types of things, uh, to pull these things from the team. So we don't have a specific R&D process but we have very clear champions in the business who drive R&D forward. I think our business is fortunate, and we were talking about it here, is I love this stuff, right? So uh, the issue for me and, and, and our team is picking the few things that really matter and focusing on the things that are really important. So certainly prioritizing and having a view of what's going to benefit us later that we can be working on slowly. So in terms of real processes, um, I would say... Uh, we're actually a fairly fluid about that. Other than that, innovation and knowing what's new is a very high priority for us. So it never finds itself in a corner stuck uh, complaining. So I thought so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, sir. Uh, I'm Diana Mojano. I'm from Centennial College. Uh, first of all, Thank you so much for your speech. It was so inspiring for us as an international student. I think it's really interesting how we can get involved in this kind of event. So my question is, I've been reading something about uh, transformational leadership, which is really interesting in the way that you as a leader have the ability to make people uh, go beyond their own interests and go in order to go to the like a, um, organizational goal. So my question is how you deal with this part because it's in terms of motivation, uh, the way you make people think about, okay, I have my family, I have my my my, uh, my place here, I wouldn't like to change. So uh, you are not the only one who like had this kind of challenge. All these people had it as well. So which is the kind of advice you can give us in order yeah. to deal with uh, It's a really neat question. I really, really liked it um, uh, f for, a couple, for a couple reasons. Um, I think this is a best practice, uh, you know, of people uh, doing multiple disciplines, for example. I'll give you examples just from, I think I'm the, the, the not the best case study, but the, uh, a really good case study of someone who worked for someone who let me do lots of different things, even though my resume didn't support it, okay, and uh, um, so that I could learn and I could get lots of experiences along the way and those types of things. We have in, in our organization, um, you know, one executive, she's not here today, um, she deserves a little time off too, you know, um, and her name is Brenda. I mean, she was an award, a Canadian acclaimed award-winning chief technology officer in our business. And she, upon my request, uh, took uh, our marketing role over. Um, 
to help us uh, continue to drive our brand and, and move forward. That was some time ago. This is out of her comfort zone, but she's just a fantastic executive. So if you look at it from a functional perspective, like, okay, Peter, you, uh, you started as a lawyer, and here's your experience, so you can only do things that are sort of, sort of close to that, I think misses a whole dimension about emotional intelligence, about the willingness to learn and the desire to learn. Um, if I'm not learning and trying new things, I get bored super quick, and I will leave. And I think that's more and more and more of our, uh, of our employee base. So I had a CEO that I worked with for probably 75% uh, before I became a CEO on my own who was very um, open to allowing me and others to try different things um, and create an environment that made us feel safe that it was okay and that you could make a mistake as long as you were learning and didn't make the same mistake again. Leadership is often about coaching and mentoring too, right? So, um, so how do you do it? It's a cultural thing. People need to feel they're a good cultural fit. They believe in your vision. They're excited about it. They want to work hard, and they're willing to try different things so that they can be better. Uh, as we look at succession planning now inside of our own business, it's all about getting cross-functional experience and moving people into different roles. And I think having a marketing person with a technology background or having a technology person with a marketing background or a customer service background is an incredible weapon and I think uh, um, certainly something we're focusing on. So I think it's cultural, to be honest with you. Thanks. Hi, uh, John Chevrolet, Money Sense. Enjoyed your talk, Peter. Um, when uh, Steve Jobs founded Apple, I, I doubt he did a focus group, but I was wondering whether you studied that and whether you did do a focus group on tangerine and were there other fruit names you were considered. Oh, sorry, I missed the last piece. What, what's the question part? The, que the question is, did you study the, uh, in coming up with the name tangerine, yeah. did you study how it worked with Apple? As I understood, he just kind of came up with it in a car one day and he didn't focus group it or anything, but did you, yeah. or did you consider other fruit names or, or what? Yeah. <laughs> like uh, pomegranate. <laughs> I didn't want me to be the guy who mentioned fruit, so it's, uh, John always asks the tough questions. So, uh, okay, so Steve Jobs, uh, he is very public about his views about don't ask people what they want because they don't know what they want, and I think I've been a little inspired in our organization because you can give them something that they didn't even know was possible, and that's transformational change, and I think, I'd say the way I am as a person, the way our organization is, to, and some of the words I just said are to some extent inspired by companies like Apple and what they've been able to do from a transformational perspective. But your question is specifically about naming your company after a piece of fruit and whether that was something that I decided was a good idea. So I will tell you, unlike Steve Jobs, um, we went through a very, ex a very, very exhaustive process. Um, uh, so... Uh, we have, uh, we, we, at the time, we had 15 years of brand equity. We invested, really, if you think about it over the years, hundreds of millions of dollars in our brand associated with ING Direct. So the name we chose was a really, really important decision. And I think um, making decisions from your gut is something that I think makes a lot of sense. And the older I get, the more I realize that your gut's actually right a little more than you thought. But some decisions are big enough and they require some analytics. So we did. I think uh, we went... We also have a shareholder that I think needed to weigh in on the decision as well. So I think having the analytics, talking to Canadians from coast to coast, doing focus groups, doing analytical work, helped us feel really confident about the choice that we made. Um, but some of us had a feeling about what we thought the right list of names would be before we even started. And um, a Tangerine didn't show up uh, in the first iteration. But they, anyway, the answer to your question is we did a lot of homework, a lot of research. We talked to a lot of Canadians. And uh, I don't think it caused the ultimate decision, but it made us feel really confident about our choice. Right. There no more questions. I'd like to thank our speaker. I'd like to call upon uh, the Vice President of the Empire Club, Mr. Ted Griffith, to thank our speaker. Thank you, Noble. Um, well, that's a tough act to follow. 
the uh, I was there's so much I could summarize about Peter's talk this this uh, this afternoon, but I recall the words of George Bernard Shaw, and I'm going to paraphrase about that reasonable people adapt themselves to the world, and unreasonable people insist on adapting the world to themselves. Therefore, all change rests on the shoulders of unreasonable people. <laughs> now, I don't think a bank wants to be known as unreasonable. Uh, but one thing that I, I didn't hear you say, I didn't hear you talk about, though I think it came through in everything that you said, because probably you wouldn't say this about yourself, uh, is the word courage. The courage to make change happen. The c- courage to be unreasonable. The courage to have a vision and, and put it forward. Um, as a member of, a longtime member of the club, I've been in this room or other rooms that we may use for a lot, a lot of speeches. And I recall just a couple years ago when a gentleman called Thorsten Hines came up to this podium and he stood up with this that we all have in many, many ways in various shapes and forms and talked about the transformational power of the new Blackberry. And what I want to say is that, of course, now we know, because we know the news, we follow that Mr. Hines is no longer the president and CEO of BlackBerry, is that the personal courage it takes to do transformal change, the risks that an executive takes to lead that change, because the expectations are there. So I want to, uh, first of all, thank you for taking on those risks and having the courage to do that. Um, and I really, truly believe that uh, Tangerine is going to... Uh, take the nation by storm. I look forward to it and thank you on behalf of the Empire Club. Um, I've got a gift for you which is called Who Said That? which is a hundred years of speeches from the club and various anecdotes. We're of course in the 110th season but I'd like to give it to you now and thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I would like to thank uh, all of the folks at Tangerine for helping us uh, put this together and for being our main sponsor today. Macmillan LLP for being our VIP sponsor. Thank you. Uh, Apex for sponsoring our student table this afternoon. I'd like to thank the National Post for being our print media sponsor and to Van Valkenburg for providing our AV. This meeting will be carried, as all of our meetings are carried, on Rogers TV, and we're very grateful for your ongoing support. At your tables, you will see uh, a list of upcoming events. And I, just today, we announced, we, we put out a press release of a very uh, special two events that are coming up. We have the ambassador uh, to Ukraine and the ambassador uh, to Russia. Uh, sorry, the reverse. The, the, Canadian, uh, the, the Ukraine ambassador to Canada and the Russian ambassador to Canada coming to speak at the Empire Club in April. And we hope that all of you... Uh, will attend that very special, those two very special uh, speeches. Uh, if we're talking about change, uh, that's, uh, that's a topic that they're dealing with. Um, so thank you everyone for coming. Membership information is available on our website, which is empireclub.org. I now call this meeting of the Empire Club of Canada adjourned.